0: Hi, I'm Ross Braun, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid.
1: Hi, everyone. Tom Clarkson here, and welcome to Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35 Two wireless headphones. Now we've got something a little bit special for you this week. My guest is Formula One's Managing Director of Motorsports, Ross Braun, but we're not going to talk about the here and now, we're getting together to discuss a fairy tale that happened 10 years ago. For those of you who don't know, Ross once had his own team, Braun Grand Prix. It existed for less than 12 months, yet it left an indelible mark on the sport. It rose, somewhat incredibly, from the ashes of Honda F1 after they withdrew from the sport at the end of 2008. And thanks to some innovative thinking and the gritty determination of everybody involved, it blitzed the field in 2009 with Jenson Button and Rubens Barrichello. It was one of the most incredible stories in the modern history of the sport. Jensen winning the driver's title and the team an unlikely constructor's crown. And you sense when talking to Ross that he still has to pinch himself, even now, 10 years on. This is one amazing story. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Ross, great to have you on the show. Um, Now, this time we're going to talk about Braun Grand Prix. Crazy to think that it's 10 years uh, since all that. Does it feel a long time ago? It does, actually, yeah.
0: Yeah. It wasn't that long ago that I was reminded it was the 10th anniversary and we are running the car a couple of times this year in celebration of it. And it was really when that started to come up that I uh, reminded myself, or I was reminded that uh, it was 10 years. A lot's happened in those 10 years.
1: I'd like to call it one of the greatest fairy tales in the history of Formula One. Is that how you view it? In some ways, yes.
0: I think there was a lot of if I might put a substance to it, in that it it wasn't a freak. It happened for various reasons, which all came together at the same time. And yeah, there was a huge amount of work put in that car, a huge amount of investment, Honda uh, investment. And so although it was a small team in itself, the team that had designed the car and the team that developed the car was huge, as big as anyone in Formula One. So There was this whole machine behind it that created the car, which then disappeared. And the nucleus of a team were left to run and race it. Appearance was of a small minnow, sort of David and Goliath type situation. But in reality, we were a Goliath before we became a David. And that's what created the car, gave us the, the tools to do the job but it was a fairy tale year i think the contrast between the despair in november when you know we were made aware of the intent for honda to withdraw and then the elation in march winning the first race is hard to
1: hard to describe can you talk us through the situation at the end of 2008 i mean the financial crisis was in full swing when did you first for example get an idea that Honda were going to pull out of Formula One?
0: Um, Really, and not until they told us, because quite genuinely, you know, Nick Fry and I were called to a meeting in London. And in fact, at the uh, Honda headquarters in Slough. And we genuinely didn't know what the meeting was for. We'd been there before for strategy meetings and it wasn't, completely uncommon to to meet at the Honda offices in Slough. Sometimes Japanese executives would prefer to stay out the limelight and visit the factory so we would meet there. So it wasn't the first time that I'd i been there to meet Honda executives. But I think the point when I walked into a room and the Honda executive was crying, I knew there was a problem. Uh, I mean, he was really upset. And he, uh, he explained that there'd been a a board decision to withdraw from Formula One because of the economic crisis and the fact that Honda were having to make a lot of very difficult decisions with their business, and they didn't they didn't feel that being seen in Formula One was the right thing for them at a time when they were making some pretty dramatic uh, decisions about their company and their employees
1: was an immediate withdrawal the only option on the table? Or, or did you discuss keeping going as a manufacturer team for two,
0: 2009? Uh, no, it was immediate. And in fact, you know, their idea, which we quickly managed to change their views, was that we'd go back and turn the lights off and shut the doors. I mean, literally, we'd go back to the factory and just tell everyone to go home. And of course, with an organization of the size we had, which was seven or 800 people, You can't do that in the UK. There are are procedures to go through. Uh, There's consultation periods, there's discussions. You can't just close down a company in that way. It was kind of surprising in a way that they had that view because they had a lot of experts there. The next phase of the same meeting was Nick and I being taken out of a small office with a one-to-one with a Honda executive to a big office, which was a long table lined with experts employment experts, lawyers, redundancy specialists, etc. So it was a little surprising that they they assumed that's what was going to happen, because that couldn't happen. And the first thing Nick and I did was to call our legal counsel, Caroline McGrory, financial director Nigel Kerr, our HR specialist, and one or two other people, and ask them to come to Slough straight away, uh, pronto, because we had a problem. And so they all came and we really didn't engage with any of the that group until we were all there. And you know, I felt we needed to have the expertise and knowledge that you know our group of specialists had to decide how we move forward.
1: What about knowledge of the two thousand and nine car? Were you aware at this point that you had an absolute belter there and and with the double diffuser and did it sort of Make it all the more frustrating?
0: We didn't know what we had. I mean, there'd been a spell when I think it was August time. The objective of the new rules was to reduce downforce by 50%. And it was quite clear from the work we were doing, we weren't losing 50%, we were losing far less than that. And there was a period in the second half of 2008 when I sat in a technical meeting and made it clear that we were not losing 50% and should we, in fact, be looking at something more draconian to achieve the objectives because the new rules didn't seem to be achieving the objectives. And I remember being accused of scaremongering that, and I kind of, a little light went off in the back of my head that Maybe we were exceptional uh, and quite genuinely the the double diffuser was not something which was seen as some massive dramatic breakthrough. I mean we were looking pretty good anyway in terms of aerodynamic performance and the um, you know the diffuser design was something which was an enhancement on that. It wasn't night and day I mean obviously as things developed the next few months then you know we, we became a more and more more and more focused on. The, the diffuser design to get the most from it, but at that stage, it was kind of an interesting idea. So, when Honda pulled the plug, I would say we we felt we had a decent car, but there was no signs at that stage that it was going to be so uh, dramatically better than anything else, certainly at the beginning of the season.
1: So, what happened next? You've had the meeting in Slough with the Honda executives when did it become apparent that you guys might be able to save the team?
0: I mean, we were in a situation that none of us had experienced before, so we didn't really know what to do. But the first thing we were successful in doing was persuading the Honda board to at least keep the team going for a while because there was a chance we could try and sell it. And the, the early attempts were definitely to find a buyer of the team. And, of course there was a lot of publicity about the situation and you know the team was put up for sale for sale notices went up and we started to entertain prospective buyers but i think it's fair to say that you know with the economic climate as it was there was not going to be any any serious buyers any anyone with any uh, substance it wasn't going to be a car manufacturer or another major blue chip investor move in, because things were fairly dire in that period. But we got you know, a whole queue of chances who could see an opportunity. And as we gradually worked through them, and it became clearer and clearer that there was not going to be a serious buyer of the team, not one that we would want to work for. And that was the criteria. We always asked ourselves when they walked through the door, or maybe when they walked out of the door. Uh, is this somebody we would want to work for? Because if we didn't, if we weren't positive about it, how could we ask our people to work for them? And one of the situations was that Honda was offering a pretty attractive redundancy package for everybody. So it would have been unfair to carry on, and for people not to have the opportunity to take that redundancy package with something that was not substantive and not not uh, viable. So, as time went on, it became clearer that it was going to be us or nothing. So we've, we we defaulted, quite frankly, into the arrangement we came to. But we were able to offer Honda a solution which cost them no more than they would have done if they they closed the company. And yeah, in many ways, and it's proven to be the case, a much Fairer solution for all the people working there than than closing it would have been. And Honda, to their credit, accepted that. And uh, it was a difficult thing for them because management buyouts is a as yeah, an unknown concept in Japan. It was certainly very alien to them that the idea that we would buy the company and certainly buy the company for for a very token fee. And you know, they were going to leave enough funding in the company to for it to survive a year.
1: How quickly did this all happen? Were, had you made that conclusion by Christmas or was it well into the new year?
0: Um, I think after Christmas, it was into the new year. I mean, we had uh, someone who'd been fairly uh, enthusiastically pursuing the purchase of the company, I would say was exposed as a fraudster just over Christmas. We'd had our suspicions from the very early stages, but we had to we had to entertain it for a reasonable amount of time. But we put a we put a detective agency on him because we were starting to get our you know starting to get worried. And I remember Christmas Eve we had the report. Nick and I had the report about the guy, and it turned out it was a fraudster who changed his name. He goes down in history as one of the biggest property purchasers in the UK. He took the Irish banks for millions and it took us a couple of days with a private detective agency to find out who he was. And yet the Irish banks had quite happily given the guy millions and he had a commercial property portfolio in London that was was built on sand and uh, it all collapsed and he ended up in jail. So um, those are the sort of people we were dealing with. It was quite... It was entertaining and educational, I think would be the, uh, so that, anyway, I remember that happened on Christmas Eve. And so I think getting over Christmas, that was probably when
1: we really started to focus on the fact that maybe if this was to survive, we had to do it ourselves. And from a technical point of view, where were you at at the same time? Had you been putting this Mercedes deal together prior to that? While you were still working out who well, was going to
0: be. Well, it. it was a credit to Formula One that they, um, when the crisis hit, we, I remember a meeting we had with all the teams, we explained our plan that we we're going to try and survive, either with somebody buying us or, well, it would have been with somebody buying us because of that idea, at that stage, we had no plans to buy the company ourselves. But the only way we could survive is with an engine. And both Mercedes and Ferrari offered to supply an engine mercedes fitted the car more easily than the ferrari and of course it's a you know mercedes engines was just up the road so uh it was a credit to both companies again that they were so willing to support uh supporters in that situation but we opted for the mercedes engine and mercedes supplied all the drawings so we could carry on Yeah, we didn't have a an agreement with them, a firm agreement, because we had no money at that stage. But they were good enough to supply all the technical information, so we'd get on and theoretically uh, have an installation in the car. And if we were able to find a deal and pay the funding, then we'd have a Mercedes engine. And there's an interesting point. When we did get the funding from Honda, Norbert Haug had been very helpful in getting this whole thing together came to me rather sheepishly and said, look, the board are a little bit worried about your future and what guarantees can you offer us for the fee for the engine? So I said, oh, we'll pay it. He said, I know you pay it, but we're worried about No, I'll pay it now. (laughs) So we paid the whole season. And we had the money from Honda and there was no point in not paying it. So we paid for the whole season before we even started. Yeah. So Norbert was chuffed about that because that, that de-risked it from his point of view because he was taking a chance all those guys were taking a chance on us
1: how problematic was the installation of the engine you say it fitted better than ferrari but how much of a compromise
0: yeah it? it wasn't ideal in that the crankshaft height was higher so we couldn't we didn't have time to redesign the gearbox so the gearbox had to be i'm trying to think now whether we were able to modify the the bell housing or we had to put an adapter plate on i can't honestly remember i think we were able to modify the front of the gearbox enough to to get it on no we would have done we would have modified it enough but the the output shaft height of the engine was higher than the honda so effectively the the gearbox was i think 10 or 12 mil higher than it should have been so the whole rear assembly the suspension the gearbox everything was 10 or 12 mil higher than It would have been so in fact we lost a little bit of performance because the center of gravity of all that sort of stuff was much higher than it should have been Uh, but that was a compromise we were willing to make because otherwise we wouldn't have gone racing so what was stunning in that period was just the commitment and devotion of the people in the factory because they had no surety of what was going to happen and they worked as hard if not harder than I've ever seen before in a Formula 1 team a period when you know you would have thought the uncertainty would have been such a massive distraction but they didn't they did the opposite it was that that resilience and that situation drew them all together it was something very special
1: we haven't talked about the drivers yet Jensen Button Rubens Barrichello Um, can you remember breaking the news to them and what they said and
0: yeah, I think Jensen um, Jensen had just signed a new contract with Honda, and so in some ways financially he was pretty well off because Honda settled the outstanding contract. So he, you know, financially he had no complaints. Um, but of course he'd never drive, and and if, you know, as a Formula One driver to drop out for a season would have been risky. You know, you get forgotten quite quickly. But there were no seats left. Uh, which was fortunate for us because I think if there had been, undoubtedly Jensen would have would have taken one because he couldn't take that risk. Well, Rubens was coming towards the end of his career and was probably you know, less appealing for other teams, so he you know he had less options anyway. I mean, Jensen had no options and and Rubens had even less. <laughs> so, uh, and in some ways the timing was very fortuitous because you know telling the drivers at the end of November that that you don't know if they've got a drive next year. If it had been earlier, they would have found other drives and we wouldn't have had the fabulous team of drivers that we ended up with.
1: How important was experience for you in 2009? I mean, I guess you really needed two drivers that weren't going to crash the whole time.
0: Yeah, I mean, there had been some negotiations going on with Bruno Senna for the other drive. Bruno Senna had quite a lot of uh, commercial backing. And there'd been some discussions with him. But in the end, we concluded that we wanted a safe pair of hands with Rubens. And it was absolutely the right decision, because Rubens did a fabulous job that year. You know, we went to his first few races with very few spares, certainly no spare chassis. <clears throat> and if either one of them had, had crashed, uh, we would have been in trouble. I think it was a testament on both that uh, they were able to Race as hard as they did, and compete as hard as they could, and they just didn't do any damage. And that was so valuable to us as a team in that stage. So that uh, that was a vital element. In fact, the whole year, neither of them really did much damage at all. I think Jensen had a off at Spa, and there were one or two other minors, but they both were invaluable in the um, in the modest amount of damage they did during the year for a team which had limited resources.
1: Now we'll come on to the races, but can I just ask you to talk us through the first winter test at Barcelona? I think you rolled the car out at Silverstone, but had a first proper test was in Barcelona.
0: Yeah, we did um we did a short circuit at um Silverstone. I remember Jensen even there saying, Well, you know, considering they've changed the rules, this car doesn't feel too bad.
1: <laughs> Straight out of the box. Yeah. Mm. Yeah.
0: And in Barcelona there's there's a little bit of variance as time has passed on the sort of version but what I remember is you know, Jensen having a run in the car and not being particularly complimentary about the way it was behaving and the chef saying to him, well, okay but you're the second fastest car out there and he was kind of telling us to stop taking the Mickey and that was the case car was clearly. Quick and uh, once we set about tuning it, and of course there was an assumption that we were running low fuel as a uh, yeah, sponsor chaser, and we weren't. You know, we had we had fifty kilos in or whatever the the amount was that was a sensible race fuel at that stage, and we just set about getting to know the car. So it was good from the beginning, and it was interesting because we missed the first Barcelona test some of the guys in the company had been doing the analysis and the the simulations. And they said, you know what? These cars don't look very quick. So either the tires have changed to a degree that we haven't anticipated, or they're just not very quick. And our predictions from the aerodynamic performance we had and the car we had was a couple of seconds faster than, than they were doing in Barcelona, the first test. And we thought, yeah, we've got something wrong here somewhere. Uh, But secretly we're hoping that we hadn't. Uh, Of course, we arrived at the test and it may not have been a couple of seconds, but it was certainly quite a decent margin in front of uh, the rest of the opposition.
1: And so before we get to Australia, what about Braun Grand Prix? Um, Did did you always envisage calling the team Braun Grand Prix or were other options on Uh, the table?
0: No, we didn't. And it was... um, there were a lot of names talked about, and uh, none of them resonated. There were some old names that had been discussed. uh, Because of course, the team originally was Tyrrell, So its origins were Tyrrell, which was bought uh, by BAR, and then BAR was bought by Honda. So it's actually one of the oldest teams in Formula One. A few name changes, but company registration goes back, I think, to the the 80s, early 80s, or maybe even the 70s. I can't remember. But it's one of the, I think it's the second or third oldest team in Formula 1. Did you discuss so, calling it Tyrrell? Uh It was discussed, yeah. Uh, whether that would be... And I honestly can't remember all the reasoning behind it. There were some strange names that came out that really were not... Uh, I think Pure Racing was one of them. I'm glad we didn't call it that. But Caroline McGrory, who was our... Uh, legal counsel because it was you know that sort of stuff was very much a a group discussion there were some things which people took individual responsibility for but we used to have a a weekly management meeting and uh, caroline mcgrory came up with the idea and i must admit i was flattered and nobody seemed to object so (laughs) that's how it came about how
1: proud did you feel seeing your name above the door
0: oh very it was a real honor yeah very special one of very many special moments that year.
1: So you finished first and second at the Australian Grand Prix. Um, How much of a surprise was that? And did the level of your dominance make you feel that, my goodness, we've got a championship challenger here?
0: I don't think you ever think that. You're just looking for the thing that's going to trip you over. I don't think any team that dominates in Formula One everyone knows that it takes tremendous effort to maintain it and the correction is just around the corner you know the in any of those periods i've been fortunate enough to be with a very competitive car and team you're just fearful of of you know, what's gonna you know what's gonna happen you know it will end you know it can't go on indefinitely however long it happens so you enjoy it but there is a, a knowing that it's going to stop and um, yeah, it won't go on forever and enjoy it. But you've got to work really hard to maintain it as long as you can. So it was almost, we thought we'd done a good job. The work really starts now. But it was a lot of fun. It was so much fun to uh, to enjoy that success, having been through that experience over the winter.
1: Well, Jensen won six of the opening seven races. How did being on that roll of success compare to previous experiences with Ferrari or Benetton?
0: It was different, and it was our own thing. I mean, you know, as part of Ferrari, you're part of a, a long tradition of history, a you know, most famous team in Formula One. It's this this huge brand and history and team and And you're a small part of it. You know, whoever you are, you're a small part of it. This was a team where we were all the major part of it. You know, it was different in that perspective. But I have to say that early part of the year was pretty absorbed with all the arguments about the validity of the car design. And, you know, that took the edge off it. But then I took the view that this is what happens when you dominate. I'd seen it in Ferrari. I mean, mm. we dominated with Ferrari and, and a lot of the team's efforts were going towards proving that we shouldn't have been doing what we were doing. It was, it's a normal situation in Formula One. People are always looking for the easy answers. And if you're working for a large corporation and you have persuaded the company to invest several hundred million to go Formula One racing and you're getting spanked, the easiest thing to say is, oh, well, they're cheating and we can't cheat because we're a large corporation it's a very easy excuse to give and i know that's what some of the team principals were telling their boards of directors and that's how they cover themselves so that's the nature of of you know the competition intensity of the competition in Formula one and i still hear it now you know i still get people come to me and tell me why somebody's winning at the moment because they've got this or they've got that or they found a way around a rule or this, that and the other. It's just the nature of Formula 1. So we had a pretty intense battle off the track as well as on the track. That took a lot of my attention in that first half of uh,
1: 2009. Was it clear to you from the outset that the major threat was going to be Red Bull?
0: Yeah, I mean, they they were a pretty aggressive team from a competition point of view. Adrian was in full flow big organization very reactive very nimble very responsive i think you know there was there was a lot of tension in that period because they felt aggrieved by what we'd done with the design of the car and adrian felt he'd he'd proposed that design previously and it had been rejected by the faa i don't know the details but that there was a bit of um tension let's put it that way i think they they were a team on the rise for sure and uh they were in a good place. They had all the resources. Whilst all the teams were affected by the economic crisis, they were a team that, you know, were potentially less distracted by it because of the structure of their ownership and their, the passion of their, their owners. And, you know, so they were a team that was still charging ahead. So, yeah, I think Red Bull were. And when I say, when I said earlier that, you know, things are such a circumstance of history, the history was in that, period that two teams, McLaren and Ferrari, you know, fighting tooth and nail the year before. And these new regulations were coming. And we were devoting 100% of what we were doing to the new regulations. And they weren't because they were fighting each other so intensely. And they both started the season in a relatively poor place. um, Because they hadn't put the the resources into the new regulations as early as um, as anyone else. I mean, one of the things I always find fascinating when new regulations come along is when you ask questions about the interpretation of regulations, and you're the first one to ask that question, you know that you're ahead of the game. And it happened with uh, the Braun GP in 2008, 2009. And it happened with the engine with uh, Mercedes in 2014. We were asking, or Andy Cow was asking questions of the FIA about the engine, six or 12 months before the same questions were being asked by other manufacturers. So you know you're ahead of the game. And, and that's one of the factors that prevailed in 2009, that two of the major uh, competitors that had, had such an intense year the year before, they'd, they hadn't put the effort into the new, the new regulations.
1: And from a results point of view, you were very much ahead of the game up to about mid-season, hugely yeah. dominant with Jensen. And then it got a little bit harder, didn't it? It was a, it was a, definitely a championship of two halves for you guys. Yeah, I mean, that? the concept of the car
0: was easily cop- you know it was easy to copy. I know there was a lot of talk about you know we had the gearbox designed around it. It's not true. I mean the gearbox was defined by the time we came up with the idea. We had the same challenge of fitting that concept around the design of the car as anyone else. Uh, and in, in a way, that was why it was vulnerable, because we didn't have a car that was truly, completely devoted to the concept, because the idea came along quite late. So it was easily, it was easy for other teams to to copy it, and we had no resource to develop the car. I think we had one or two relatively modest updates during the season because you know we we had a limited budget you know quite honestly we were mindful of being able to carry on into 2010 with some modest sponsorship and still surviving so we were you know we had the everything was batten down you know we were spending as little money as possible and we were um, being as cautious as possible so teams you know the adage that if you stand still in form 1, you go backwards. It was a perfect demonstration of that. You know, A car that was dominant for the first half of the season was not dominant in the second half. And one of the things that helped or saved us was Ruben's two wins after that. You know, the fact that... And I think, I don't know if Jensen acknowledges it, but I think he got a bit tight in the second half of the season. I think you know, he was the world champion to be beaten. He was, it was a world championship to lose. And I think that for someone who's never been there before, that's a heavy load to carry. And he, he got a little bit tight and got a little bit involved in things that probably he wouldn't have got involved in normally. Um, so it did start to go downhill uh, in a worrying way for the second half of the year. <laughs> Saved, as I say, by a couple of, Great race wins by Rubens.
1: How nervous did you get?
0: Pretty nervous because, uh, you know, you get those opportunities rarely. And to have been that dominant and lose a championship would have been so disappointing. Again, particularly because of the circumstances. And we'd also started negotiations with Mercedes by then to, to sell the team. So that was another factor. So first half of the year was sort out the legal challenges to our design second half of the year we start to find a solution with Mercedes to buy the team because they were keen to have their own team so there was a lot of other stuff going on apart from the racing
1: can I ask who approached who with Mercedes
0: Uh, Norbert was always very keen on on Mercedes having their own team and I think there was the relationship with McLaren was becoming to coming to a natural end McLaren we're getting more and more ambitious on the road car side, which was not fitting in well with Mercedes' plans. So, I mean, they'd achieved a tremendous amount together. But, you know, like a lot of these things, it was coming to a natural close. So Norbert was the architect of the purchase of Braun GP by Mercedes.
1: Can I ask you about two races in particular? Um, first up, Hungary must have been an emotional roller coaster for you given what happened with Felipe Massa and his accident and the spring coming from Ruben's car can you just talk us through what happened
0: well when the accident happened we had no idea what had been the cause and it was only you know sometime afterwards that the facts started to emerge and we realized that you know, there was a transverse spring you know the cars had uh, side springs and then they had a like a transverse rocker arrangement and the damper shaft snapped spring came out i mean the chances of it happening were genuinely a million to one i mean when you see the slow motion the spring kind of bounces looks like it's going to go off the track and then somehow kicks back onto the track and hits felipe so it was a pretty shocking event and and one which uh, you know, debris from race cars is you know happens it's uh nobody wanted to and you all feel responsible but it it is a a factor and um knowing Felipe very well and uh being a friend that was another aspect so we were all completely shocked by what happened For, fortunately he recovered and um but it was scary and and when your car's involved in that way then of course you feel terrible about it. So um, that was a pretty unpleasant start of the season.
1: A happier memory would be Monza to score a 1-2. Rubens this time taking mm. the win ahead of Jensen. What was it like to, to win at Monza, you know, with all your links with Ferrari and the Tifosi?
0: Again, you yeah, know,
1: another, another special
0: moment in, in uh, that season. I'd say there's nothing like winning at Monza with a Ferrari, but that was as close as it got. I think what was nice is the, the genuine joy in the paddock for Rubens to win a race. I think he, uh, he has huge respect. I think a genuine joy in the whole Formula one pit lane was, um, everyone came out and clapped as he went down the pit lane. It was very special. And critical race for us because we were under siege by then and we had to push back and uh i think red bull thought they had us at that stage and we there was a few kicks from the corpse still that we managed to (laughs) and that was one of them
1: so can you remember your emotions of actually getting it done getting the job done in brazil I've seen, is there a picture of you giving Jensen a bear hug? I think I've seen. Yeah, know. probably. <laughs> Can you remember now, 10 years on, just how it felt?
0: Um, you know, my general impressions of the weekend, it was obviously incredibly tense. Either team, either driver could win the championship. As I say, we'd been under siege for a number of races and we were fighting back and qualifying was, was sort of very eventful. It was a mixed weather qualifying, and I think both Vettel and ourselves got it wrong. They got it wrong a little bit more than we did, so we were down the grid with with Jensen. Rubens was quite well up there from memory, obviously refuelling at that stage, so you know that was a added element. And uh, so I think Rubens was probably a bit like we may well have. The thing I do remember is. Jensen coming to me on Sunday morning and saying, look, don't worry, I'm going to get it sorted today. And that was really unusual for him. He never, he never said things like that. And his dad was there. And I think his, him and his dad had had a talk. And I think he'd realized that he'd, he'd not been delivering as well as he had been at the beginning of the season. He knew in himself, he drove a superb race. I mean, yeah, his overtaking was sensational. He just did everything he needed to do on that day. And he drove a fantastic race. You know, was strong when he needed to be, was sensible when he needed to be. He just drove a fantastic race. And uh, and he told me that's what he was going to do before the race started.
1: <laughs> Ross, how important was it for you to get it done then rather than go down to the wire to the last race
0: well you just don't know what's going to happen and getting it done a race or two before the end of the season was no doubt uh, much more comfortable than leaving it till the end I can't remember ever feeling so much relief as I did that day so much emotion you know I had some very very special times in my career with with Benetton and then Ferrari and lots of very special times with Ferrari but I think just the, the whole circumstance and the whole background, the fact that Ferrari, I worked for Jean Todd and I worked for Lucas and Montezemela and I worked for the Ferrari as a, a Braun GP. That was it. It was me. You know, a whole team, don't get me wrong, but there was no one above me giving me guidance or supporting me. It was, it was me. <laughs> the buck stopped. And and that that brought different pressures but also brought different rewards when, when it was successful. And, um, so it was very, very special and something which I'll never forget. Your proudest achievement? I think so. I mean, I, I've been extremely lucky in being proud of a lot of things, but that was a very special year. And I think because of all the other circumstances, not because we won the championship, it was because of all the other circumstances. Very, I've had very many special times in mode racing and, um, Championships with Benetton, first race win, first uh, I was, I was part of a team that won Le Mans, sports car championship. And then, of course, such a brilliant period at Ferrari. And not just the race wins, but the emotions there and the friendships and the experience and the connection that you have with the Italian fans. And the Tifosi is something which is totally unique. But Braun GP was different and something you couldn't uh, anticipate, couldn't create. I mean, you know, we travel easy jet, so every Sunday night we'd be on an easy jet flight back to the UK with all the fans uh, having a beer, and that was something I'd not experienced before. So it was just totally different experience and uh, one I'd uh, never change in any way. Yeah, that was uh, very special.
1: And you still own Braun GP chassis 001. Yeah. And yeah. Rubens drove it last weekend at Goodwood and Jensen's going to be driving it this coming weekend at Silverstone. What made you bring the car out of retirement? I've had the car obviously since since um, I
0: left Mercedes and it, it always been operational, but just, I don't think it had gone out, but uh I ran it a couple of years ago at Goodwood at the, at the invitation of Charles and it was very popular and uh, I went for a day or two of the weekend and uh, it was extremely popular but 10 year anniversary we're running it uh, we've run it at Goodwood and lots of our old team were there uh, helped, some of them helped to run it and but lots of them came out to celebrate and we've got a very special moment. Jensen couldn't make that, unfortunately. We've got a very special moment coming up at Silverstone with, um, we're running a car on Thursday. So, uh, and the car will be there all weekend for the fans to see. So, um, it's um, something that gives me a great deal of pleasure. It's not cheap to run it. You can imagine the number of people it needs. and uh, uh, But it's something I can give back a little bit to uh, people's enjoyment. And... I still get so many fans come up with a Braun GP hat or uh, some Braun GP memorabilia, and often saying it was the you know, season of their their memories. And um, it was, again, very special to have engaged and touched people so in, in such a way. So uh, it'd be great to see Jensen in the car at Silverstone.
1: The fans are going to love it. Thank you for bringing the car out of retirement and thank you for sharing your memories. That was fantastic. Pleasure. Thanks. What an unbelievable season for Braun Grand Prix. And Ross gave us so many little gems during that chat. You can just imagine the horror of that meeting with the Honda bosses in Slough when he was told the bad news. Then there was the horrid uncertainty of winter 2008-09, when the management was trying to secure the future of the team. Followed by the euphoria of that first test at Barcelona, when they immediately knew that they had a world beater on their hands. Thank you, Ross, for sharing those memories. And thank you on behalf of F1 fans around the world for dusting off your BGP 001 so that Jensen can drive it at Silverstone over the British Grand Prix weekend. It's going to be an unmissable moment and an emotional one, too. Well, that's it for this episode. But we'll be back next week with another big name from the world of F1. Until then, why not subscribe to Be on the Grid if you haven't already? We're on all of your favorite podcast apps, including Apple and Spotify. And thanks for your feedback about last week's episode with Kevin Magnuson. He gave us great insights into his personal and professional life. And it seems you guys loved it. K-Mag is the man, says Jeremy Field. I love his straight-talking attitude and the way he just goes for it in the car. Give him a race-winning car, and I'm convinced he'll do just that. Well, thanks for your feedback, Jeremy. Lots of people appear to agree with you, and wouldn't it be great to have Kevin join the new generation of racers at the front of the grid? And please keep your feedback coming, all of you. We really love hearing from you. Remember to use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid and you can tweet me at tomclarksonf one Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.